simple phishing, more network-attached storage bugs, a critical Java patch, and new ransomware stats. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug. He is Paul. Hello, everybody. And we like to start the show with a fun fact, and I found this one today. I thought it was fun. There's a volcano on Mars that's triple the height of Mount Everest and covers an area roughly the size of the state of Arizona. It is called Olympus Mons, and it's believed to be the largest volcano in our solar system. But I'm sure we haven't found all the volcanoes in our solar system yet, Paul. Not yet. I think looking down into some of the planets, moons, etc. is quite hard. There's also the issue, of course, that Mars doesn't have any, or at least very much, surface water. So I think if you drained all the Earth's oceans, Mars-style, then there would be very much taller mountains on Earth, would there not? That is a great point. That is a great point. Only one way to find out, and neither you nor I have the wherewithal to drain the oceans quite yet. I don't know. Give mankind a few more decades. Well, yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately. Well, speaking of uh, humankind doing bad things, we have some new ransomware stats. And one of these big stats from our yearly uh, State of Ransomware survey, our State of Ransomware 2022 survey is just coming out. One of the big stats each year is how many people who responded were hit by ransomware in the past year and that number goes up then it goes down it goes up and down and how, how are we looking this year doug this is a fascinating report as always because although it's a survey that sophos funded we didn't make the calls ourselves so we avoided turning the survey into a bunch of leading questions so i think as always there's some bad good news and some good bad news if you can put it like that 2020, about half of the people responded said, yes, we've actually had a ransomware hit. 2021, one third of the people had got hit, so it had gone down. In this year's figures, unfortunately, the number of people who admitted they had had a ransomware hit had gone up to 66%, two thirds of the people, which is quite a dramatic increase, just under double from last year. But I suppose the, the good bad news is that we still had a case of one third of the people who did get hit were able to stop the coup de gras, the actual encryption that derails their business. That's good. Unfortunately, whereas last year's survey, about one third of the people who got hit decided they had little choice but to pay up. This year, that was close to a half. So more people are getting hit and a slightly higher percentage of those feel they have to pay up. The good bad news, however, is that in the past year, to my surprise, one-fifth of the people who did pay actually ended up paying a ransom that was below 10,000 US dollars. So it's not always the case that the headline-making ransomware attacks are how it ends up for you, even if you get stuck with paying. In the UK and the US, the average ransomware payment, 150,000 US. So our global average was high, $800,000 per ransomware attack payment. But I think that average was dragged up rather dramatically, in particular by Japan, where there were quite a large number of ransomware attacks. And the average payment there 
was $4 million. Maybe in countries like the US and the UK, companies have said, look, we know that paying doesn't get all our data back. And we know that it's doing a deal with the devil. So we're going to set our maximum amount will be negotiated to very low. And the chances of getting all your data back, should you pay the ransom, of course, are those chances are low, 4%. Yes. Every year, there's some outlying statistic. Last year's one was another 4% stat. And that was the, the rather cheeky statistic that 4% of people who paid the ransom got back nothing at all. In other words, it was an abject and total rip-off slash business failure by the crooks. All they had to do was provide a decryptor, and they couldn't even do that in 4% of the cases, which is a good argument for not paying. This year, it was kind of the other way around, but it's also a great reminder, I think, why companies are saying, you know what, you want $4 million for something so uncertain, I'm just going to say no. Only 4% of people who paid up actually ended up getting everything back. So it's sort of like last year's statistic, but from the other end. Okay, lots more in the report. That is the State of Ransomware 2022. These are findings from an independent vendor agnostic survey of 5,600 IT professionals in mid-sized organizations across 31 countries. And you can get it at sophos.com slash ransomware 2022. Easy peasy. Okay, Paul, we got a phishing message. And, uh, you know, a lot of times uh, these fishers try to get a little fancy and pull in some images and you know try to fake your banking site but it was just simple and straightforward to the point that it didn't look like the kind of email that someone would deliberately construct to try and freak you into doing something it's just two emails were returned to sender click here for failed message report and the crooks made it look as though it was a plain text email there's no html fanciness in there no special markup, no bold face, no big fonts, no headlines, no background colors. The problem then is that if you think it's just a plain text email, when you see the link that you have to click, I reckon a lot of people will assume, oh, that's just the text of a URL that's been turned blue and made clickable by my email client, because most email and webmail clients will do that these days. So here it looks like that's the case, but in fact, because it's HTML, it's a clickable link that looks like a URL, but when you click it, of course, you go to the crook site. So it's just one element of simplicity, if you like, that means that even a well-informed user who's just quickly going through stuff, oh, I wonder what that is. Let me just see what they are, see if they're important. Yeah, I would give this uh, an 8 out of 10 if would I you? were rating yeah. this. It's pretty good if you have a busy uh, person that's like, oh, geez, two, two returned emails. I got to take care of this. And it's just a link, nothing else. Absolutely. As you said, it's not like, hey, they don't know my name. They don't know what bank I got. They think, remember that case where we had, they think that Riyadh is a city in Austria. <laughs> you know, there, <laughs> yeah. there are just, there are just <laughs> no obvious errors. You should spot it, but you might not because it just doesn't try as hard as a lot of people seem to expect that fishes will. Everyone expects in machine-generated messages, people expect abbreviations and staccato language and simplified constructions. And of course, when you click through, it's just a user control panel, enter your password and click login. And that's that. Ironically, Doug, I noticed that the site was actually hosted on some Japanese web hosting company. 
I guess either the crooks got a password there or set up a free account or, you know, hacked an account. I, I don't think there's any sense that the crooks were in Japan. And when I turned JavaScript off, the web hosting company, it actually injected a message in Japanese that the crooks probably couldn't turn off saying, this site requires JavaScript, may not work properly. But actually, even without JavaScript, it looks exactly the same. And it works fine. It's just a web form. It's neat. It's simple. And aside from the fact that obviously it's on the wrong URL, not the one that is associated with your company, uh, there's nothing in there that looks wrong. Yeah, it looks like a, like a quarantine summary that, that you might actually use on a daily basis. So we have some tips, and you've heard most of these before. But uh, the first is don't click helpful, quote unquote, links in emails or other messages. Yes, for your email service, for your web hosting company, for your social media accounts. Learn how to log in and get to the pages that let you do this sort of stuff, like view your quarantine by yourself. That way, when you get a message that says, hey, there's stuff in your quarantine, there's no need to click a link in the message. So even if it is a legitimate quarantine message, you find your own way there. You can't be misled by a link that's wrong. You can use a bookmark that you set up yourself. And along those lines, think before you click. Yes, don't rely on the assumption that I think a lot of people still have that generally phishing crooks will make at least one catastrophic, obvious or disastrous error. Sometimes the crooks just keep it simple. And so take the time to look. A few extra seconds can save you an awful lot of heartache later. And then, of course, one of my personal favorites, use a password manager if you can. Yes, we've said this however many times, haven't we? The idea is that if you click a link that does take you to a phishing site, that will inevitably have the wrong domain name in there, even if it's a lookalike domain, you know, where they put a one instead of an L or two Vs instead of a W, your password manager will go, never heard of it. So it can't put in a password. It's designed to do specific matching. This password goes with that site and no other. And I would say if you're using a password manager correctly, you should not be able to remember any of your passwords. That's the job of the password manager, which is protected by one master password, but all the other ones should be gibberish. And then we've got report suspicious emails to your own IT team. Indeed, this is part of our regular advice, isn't it? If you're on that IT or security operations team in a company, even if it's a small business, make sure that all your staff have a simple email address, perhaps even a phone number if you still do phone support, somewhere that the first person to see something dodgy can report it. If you see something early and you can raise the alarm, particularly if it's something you went, wow, that was smarter fish than I thought. If you can raise the alarm, you help the next guy. All right. And as phishing goes kiss, don't let plain and simple messages catch you out on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And if you recall, a few weeks ago, we talked about network-attached storage uh, company QNAP, which had some, uh, some pretty serious bugs in uh, some of its storage devices, and they're back. Yes, the last thing we talked about, to be fair to QNAP, was in fact bugs that they had patched and controversially to some people had forcibly applied the updates, even to people who had automatic updating off, you know, by tell me about the updates and wait till I click OK. 
they overrode that for as many people as they could. But even so, they felt it necessary to put out a warning saying, customers, please go and check that you really are up to date. Because if you aren't, and if your NAS box isn't set up as you probably think it is, and crooks can see it from the outside, there is a chance that you'll get hit by this aggressive, across the internet, NAS box scrambling ransomware. So that was QNAP's previous problem. Obviously, that was embarrassing for them when the ransomware first appeared. But I thought it was quite a nice move of them to say, look, we have fixed this. Most of you will have the patch, but we're still getting reports of this happening. Come on, everybody. Let's go and check. So this time there are some more bugs that are a little bit different. Uh, This time the bugs haven't been fixed yet, but bless their hearts, what QNAP has done is said, you know what, maybe we have been a little bit slow with this. There are bugs in the Apache web server, which we use for the sort of uh, control interface for you to manage your NAS box. So you can administer it with a browser instead of using a custom app or command line tools. We've got these bugs which could cause problems. And because they've been patched by Apache some time ago, but we haven't caught up yet, We want to provide some public information that lets you know whether you're at risk. So I thought that was quite a nice sort of security advisory. And the good news is that the two main bugs that they're going to need to patch, which possibly could cause remote execution, or I don't think anyone knows how to make that remote code execution work yet. Firstly, the features that are needed to enable the bugs are not turned on by default. And secondly, it's pretty easy to check whether you have enabled them without realizing it and go and turn them off. So it's a nice example of a security advisory, really. We've got these bugs. We haven't got around to fixing them yet. You're probably not at risk because they're not, the features aren't enabled by default. Please go and take a look. It's interesting. We had a, a commenter on one of the social media platforms say, oh, well, QNAP bugs, more QNAP bugs. Well, I'll never buy their product again. And my response was, Don't you think actually this gives you a bit more confidence? Isn't that actually better than, say, the Apple approach of just saying nothing at all until the time that the actual fix is available? And then when the fix is available, that's when you find out about the workarounds that might have been helpful to know about two weeks before. So I thought that was a a reasonable example. And if you do have a QNAP NAS box, go and read their alert. They actually have quite a nicely organized security advisories page, if you ask me. Pretty easy to find out which bugs apply to which devices and what you need to do. So you should be immune by default. You might not be. And because the patches aren't out yet, you might as well go and check. And while you're about it, make sure that your NAS box and indeed any other important device, whether that's your router, your baby monitor, your fish tank system, make sure that they are not exposed to the internet unless that is actually what you intended. And also go into your router, whatever brand you have, find where the universal plug and play page is and make sure universal plug and play is turned off. In my opinion, it is an unnecessary evil that can inadvertently cause your router to be so clever that it opens up a hole to an internal device, to someone from the outside without you realizing it. And hold that thought because we have a reader question about 
those uh, that very advice that we will tackle at the end of the show. Until then, that uh, article is called QNAP Warns of New Bugs in Its Network-Attached Storage Devices on NakedSecurity.Sophos.com. And it is time for our This Week in Tech History segment. This week, on April 26th, 1998, the computing world was ravaged by the CIH virus, also known as Space Filler. The virus was a Windows executable that would fill the first megabyte of hard disk space with zeros, effectively wiping out the partition table, and then a second payload would then try to write to the BIOS in order to destroy it. And Paul, you were there, man. Yes, it was, how can I put it, interesting times. As you say, the the name Space Filler came from the fact that this virus used a technique today you'll hear it called called code caving basically what you do is if you want to modify something so that you don't need to allocate extra memory if you're doing a memory attack or so that you don't need extra disk space so what it would do is it would find what's called slack space or unused areas inside windows executable because actually windows files internally you know you get you get the header and then you get the code and then you get the data and then you get the import table and so on and those are all padded out so that they align on sector boundaries for the disk because that speeds up reading the file apparently and so if you have say a code section that uses one byte of the last sector of the file then that will get padded out leaving one sector minus one byte of basically unused space And unfortunately, in Windows 95, when Windows 95 would load the file into RAM, it would read what was on the disk, even though that wasn't that was supposed to be slack or unused space. It would suck that into memory and it would leave it there fully executable, regardless of where in the file it was. The, The sort of execution prevention tools that we now take for granted simply didn't exist in those days so you could add sometimes quite significant amounts of code to a file in such a way that the checksum of the file would change but if you were just relying on things like the size of the file and the timestamp which you can trivially change back you wouldn't notice this even if you had a thousand copies of it on your hard disk and that's the problem with viruses in the bad old days if you did a cleanup on your computer, even if you weren't on the internet, and you missed one file, <laughs> then it just started all over again. <laughs> so on a network, you could have an almost complete cleanup, and you miss one lousy file, and then someone runs that, and you're back to square one automatically all over again. And what was particularly bad here, it was the 26th of April. Don't know why. That was the trigger date. As you say, it would try and wipe out your hard disk, or at least the beginning of the hard disk, which is enough to make it not bootable. And in some cases, it'd be quite hard to recover the disk, although technically it was often possible with a little bit of hard work and expertise. But if you're really unfortunate and you had the wrong kind of BIOS chip, it would enable write access to the BIOS chip which was kind of unregulated in those days. There was no firmware protection. There were no digital signatures. Basically, there was a magic code sequence that depended on the BIOS chip that was in use. You you just poked some bytes into memory in the chip, and the chip, okay, I'll accept an update now. You didn't need to be root or admin. You just had to know the magic sequence of byte accesses for each chip. And sadly, this chap did, 
Uh, and we estimated, we could only guess that, at least in the UK, which is where I tried to do the estimate, about 25% of business computers were using this particular type of BIOS chip. Uh, what we didn't know is how many of those were socketed, which meant you could, in theory, unplug the chip and reprogram it, and how many were soldered on, a much harder prospect to fix. But basically, writing over the hard disk, you could at least recover the hard disk and use it again, even though you lost your data. Once the BIOS was overwritten, you had the problem that you could not boot the computer to the point in the BIOS that you had enough power to re-enable the BIOS writing and fix it. It was literally bricked motherboard. What happened is that you'd power on your computer, the second machine instruction that executed would crash the system. Yeah, that's wild. So you wouldn't even get the welcome to the American Megatrends BIOS or hello Phoenix BIOS copyright <laughs> 1990. You know those messages. Yeah. You'd just see a black screen forever. And if you're really unlucky, it could mean replacing the motherboard unless you were an expert and the tools and techniques were not as widely known back then at desoldering, reflashing, and resoldering surface mount BIOS chips, which even back then were pretty tiny. Fortunately, the Sophos Labs, we put hardware right protect switches with a little electronic modification and a toggle switch on all of our research computers, just in case. So cool. Uh, we also took all the socketed BIOSes, put them in our EEPROM programmer, and made images of them all, just in Smart, case yeah. <laughs> another... Well, we had to test this malware. We, want, yeah. we, we looked at the code. You could see what it did. You could match that up against the data sheet from the company that made this BIOS chip. And it was obviously enable write. So you're kind of thinking, I wonder if it really works. Well, we have to try it. Like somebody is going to have to take one for the team and give up their research computer for the BIOS trashing project. The trashing did work and we were able to reprogram the chip afterwards. Of course, a public podcast would not be the place to mention that the person who volunteered their computer to be the sacrificial goat, if you like, was in fact on vacation at the time. <laughs> we'll leave that story right there. That is a fascinating uh, time in uh, cybersecurity history. Speaking of interesting times in cybersecurity history, we are living through one right now with this critical Java bug. And uh, so we got a couple problems here. One is that Oracle only uh, update releases security updates every quarter. That's probably not often enough. And the other is that this is, uh, you just need to, if, if you want to get past a cryptographic key, you just got to supply a key with all zeros in it. Is that, am I reading that correctly? Simply put, when you get to the point that you need to prove to the person at the other end of the network connection that you have really produced the elliptic curve digital signature that you claim, in other words, when it comes to signing something with your private key in technical terms, you can do it in one of two ways. Either you can front up to the immigration officer's desk and you can get out your current valid passport and you can let them scan your passport and check back with the home office or homeland security or whatever it is in whichever country you're visiting that that passport is valid and you can subject yourself to 
the gaze of the immigration official checking that your face matches the photo on the paper, matches the photo in the chip. And all of those tests, you can go through all of that rigmarole carefully, honestly, precisely and accurately. Or you can present a completely blank passport with no text in it at all. (laughs) And either one of those will work just as well. Okay, that's a great analogy. How do you react to that? It really is potentially that bad. Apparently, according to the researcher who found and responsibly disclosed this, Neil Madden, this bug, it turns out, was introduced quite some Java versions ago, back, I think, in Java 15. We're currently at 18, with 19 waiting in the wings. And basically, it is two lines of error checking that are supposed to be in elliptic curve digital signature verification code. Basically, did they send us a bunch of zeros or not, is what you're supposed to check. But back in the Java 15 days, somebody in the Java community decided, you know what, we're going to rewrite all Java's cryptographic code that's a C++ add-in. We're going to rewrite it in Java itself. Why not? Java doesn't suffer from the kind of memory allocation and memory mismanagement bugs that are common in C++. It makes sense. It's the Java ecosystem will rewrite the crypto libraries in Java. And when they got rewritten, this particular check, which is absolutely vital, it should obviously be there, very loose, very greatly simplified. It's supposed to check that A times B equals C. And of course, if either A or B is zero, then you can predict in advance what C is going to be. And that is basically the nature of the bug. Really embarrassing for the Java community, but really dangerous for people who are relying on elliptic curve digital signatures for things like session authentication, like TLS, setting up a connection saying, yeah, I really am that server. Code signing, where you say, Here's an update for your BIOS. Well, these days, we're really careful about BIOS updates because they have to be digitally signed. Oh, dear, I forged it. Or other things that you might apply digital signatures to of this sort might be things like forensic logging records. Here's the logging data, and here's proof that it was generated by somebody with the authority to make this claim on the network. So the problem is a little bit like the infamous log for shell bug, It doesn't just affect servers that accept connections from browsers or vice versa. It could, in theory, affect a whole range of other Java apps. And perhaps even worse than Log4Shell, which depended on you having a Java app you hadn't realized was written in Java that used the Log4J library that you didn't realize was there. In this case, the bug is part of the Java runtime itself. So any Java app could be vulnerable not just as in the case of Log4Shell, a proportion of Java apps that happen to use the buggy third-party library. So it is a very simple case, Douglas, of patch early, patch often. And the larger issue here is the uh, researcher points out, I, I won't read his entire quote, but the last line of the quote is, I am not at all confident that other bugs aren't lurking in this code because this is something that should have been caught. Presumably the code got ported and the rather lackluster test suite got ported as well. And the problem with cryptographic code is you can kind of never test it too much. And in particular, where there are things 
in the algorithm or in the standards document that says you must ensure you know that r is not zero s is not zero those things to anybody writing a qa procedure or writing test code those are things that when you see this must not happen in the specification you know that that is one thing that in your test code you're going to try to make happen just so you can make sure that the standard and the specification was followed correctly. It's an embarrassing bug. It's not the end of the world, and it is easy to fix. You just need to upgrade your Java. Of course, if you have apps that bring their own Java, for example, uh, I checked on my Linux box, and I have the Java development kit that I installed and look after myself. It was a matter of 20 seconds to update that from Oracle's site, download the new version, write it over the old one, job done. But I also found that I have an Arduino development toolkit, IDE, installed. And that uh, brings along its own copy of Java, the Java executable. So I need to go and check that that's patched as well before I use it again. All right. An eye on that. Uh, that is critical cryptographic Java security blunder patched. Update now on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And as the sun begins to set on our show for today... It's time to hear from one of our readers on the article we discussed earlier about the QNAP bugs. Reader Danny Boy asks, and you know, I had the same question myself. One of the supposed advantages I've seen for a NAS device, network attached storage device, is that it can be connected to the internet so that it can be accessed away from your base. But my rather limited computer skills mean I'm too worried to even think of doing this. Is it possible to do it? even though your remarks, Paul, your remarks above suggest this is not possible. So the whole point of these NAS boxes is you hook them up, you plug them into your router, and then when you're on vacation, oops, I forgot a file, I'm going to just tap in and get it. Thank you, Universal Plug and Play, for making it so easy. Yes, I, I, I had to answer that comment by admitting that I, although I hadn't exactly said this is impossible, I'd sort of fudged the issue a bit. In, in my advice, I said, don't expose your NAS box or any other internal device of importance for that matter to the internet unless you really meant to, <laughs> which is sort of fudging the how do I do that securely. So what I was suggesting is if you have got a NAS box and you've plugged it in and you don't need to access it remotely, go and check that it isn't accessible remotely, because if it is, somebody else is going to come knocking on your door and that usually ends in tears. As to how do you get access securely to your home network when you are not at home, my advice is you might not feel technically confident to do this yourself, but you might have a chum who can help you. Consider taking the same sort of approach that a business would take to allowing people access from the outside, which is using technologies like a VPN, virtual private network, or the modern overarching name for that kind of technology where you, you come in and you get access to some things inside ZTNA, zero trust network access. The idea there is that you have a, something like, say, a firewall, and you have to log into the firewall first. And then once you've done that, because that firewall is designed to be opened up to the outside world. It's supposed to be accessible from the outside in a controlled way. So by using, say, a VPN or zero trust network access, you first have to log into the firewall. And typically, you know, that would involve a username and a password, probably two-factor authentication if the firewall is any good. And then the firewall decides, OK, I'm going to give you controlled access to internal devices by making you an 
honorary restricted member of the local area network. That way, if your NAS box does have its own extra security for logging in, then you can still apply that. But it means that the firewall itself is providing that first authentication stop, which is a lot different to having them just visible on the internet and hoping that nobody notices, because somebody surely will. And if I may, with the only bit of commercialism in the podcast, I will repeat what I said in that comment in that article. It, it just so happens that the Sophos firewall, version 19, just came out with a whole load of cool new features. There is a, a home edition version of the Sophos firewall. You need to provide your own spare computer. So you basically get the full industrial grade firewall with a home user license for all of the features. To be honest, it is a bit of a science project to set it up. It's not like your typical home router. It's got email filtering. It's got web filtering. It's got the VPN. It's got zero trust network access. It's got bandwidth management. It's got web classification filtering, all that sort of stuff in it. Um, but you can actually have that at home for free if you like. And so if you're serious about treating your home network as if it were essentially a small business network for you, this can work really well. If you're thinking, oh, I'd love to learn more about industrial grade firewalls and how they work, and you've got a spare laptop, this is a fantastic way of learning because it doesn't cost you anything. And of course, inside your network while you're at home, that can also protect all your laptops as well as your NAS boxes and even the browsing that your kids do on their mobile phones. So you can, you can put in you know, family-friendly web filtering and that sort of stuff if you want. So go to any Naked Security article and down at the bottom, there's a bar at the bottom of every article with Sophos links to Sophos free tools in there. And it is currently the leftmost one, Sophos Firewall Home Edition. Excellent. Well, if you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That is our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth reminding you... Until next time, too, stay, stay secure. secure.